Drinks with Tony is taped in front of an oblivious, unsuspecting audience engaged in their own conversations, sometimes looking at us and wondering why Tony is shoving a large boom mic into authors' faces. Hey, this is Kat Gwynn. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. And on the Drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Kat Gwynn. She's a photographer and the author of 10 Mile Radius, Reframing Life on the Path Through Cancer. Hi, Kat. Hey, Tony. How are you? I'm well. And you're also working on something else. Is the Joshua Tree Project coming out? I just finished it shortly, not that long ago, and I'm looking to place it. Mm. Okay, good. So what I got was like a, a, a preview copy. We won't, we'll pretend like it's not out then. <laughs> well, it's not out officially, but we can certainly talk about it because it is kind of an extension of 10 mile radius. Well, okay, so let's, let's, get, let's talk about 10 mile radius then before we talk about anything. So then there's total context going on here. You know what I'm saying? I love context, yes. But I'm also nonlinear too, so it's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll do chapter five, and then we'll go to chapter one, and then the listener can choose where that's at and cut back and forth. That's a great idea. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Okay. It's like those old books where you go choose what your next chapter is. That's essentially going to be this podcast. The special is go go to minute 17 for chapter one, minute five, chapter four. And, oh wait, minute 21, chapter 13. Exactly. Two prime numbers right there. I, ooh. Oh, no, that's not prime. 21 is dividable. All right. Now we're talking about math. Back to you, Kat. I know very little about math. <laughs> so I was a punk rock kid. I didn't I didn't really do math in high school. Did you did you grow up in LA? I did. Well, you, I grew up in Orange County and LA. Okay. I love well, see, because to me, coming from San Francisco, everything's LA. So when people are like, no, Orange County. I'm like, isn't that LA? But people look at me and go, Tony, it's not LA. So you were around okay, so you were around like you were around the whole punk rock era happening oh my in God. the seventh. I was one of the kids of the black hole. Yeah. Which was Mike Ness's apartment. And okay. we would hang out with all those kids, the adolescents and social distortion wow. and Agent Orange. And yeah. yeah, I had. So when I was in high school and I found some of these bands like Social Distortion and Mommy's Little Monster, oh. a- Agent Orange. And they're, you know, and I had those on tapes. We, we, we traded tapes with all our friends because I grew up Jehovah's Witness. So we really couldn't have punk rock. So we would we had to like we had to move those tapes around like they were contraband, and then. Um, oh, that's so funny. Yeah, yeah. That's great. Well, I mean, and that's what's so different about being a punk kid for, with first wave punk. I mean, it, I don't think anyone knew what to take of us, and we all were kind of latchkey kids, and yeah. you know, just being kind of crazy. But in a weird way, I didn't realize how much being a punk kid would shape my artist life my whole life really yeah now I have my reason I have my thoughts on it but how do you think it shaped you becoming an artist uh, coming from that time and that era I feel like that was an era where nobody knew that punk was going to be anything it was just here's what we're doing and deal with it well there's something and and it really is a theme throughout all of my artwork you know which is being with uncertainty and not knowing. And like you did, you put it perfectly. We didn't realize at that time that punk would end up being so influential and also such a, a, a sort of an ethos, you know? I mean, you look at someone like Patti Smith, who is my absolute hero, 
And she still, as an artist, I believe, you know, lives by this real strong punk ethos. And it's not just, you know, annihilation and anarchy, which that's part of it, but that's not, I think it really is being with not knowing and creating, because really when you think about it, being an artist, a writer, we know that we start with a blank page, right? Or I start with a camera with no thought of what I'm going to find, and then you frame it, or reframe it as it were, and you turn it into something. And that's, you know, so kind of having that that ability to just say, fuck it, I'm going to be with what is, and find a way, sort of capture it in your own unique way, I think is punk. That's funny, and it's almost like grabbing from old Zen, ancient like Zen culture, and then throwing it into punk. Because you know, when I first when I first got into punk, I was like, wait, we can bump into each other and we could scream our guts out. And then you know, later on, I realized, oh wait, there's there's something more to this. There's there's a soul and there's a heart. And then after that, I kind of applied that to everything. Where even drinks with Tony, I'm like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing, and I don't know what the hell I've been doing for you know over two decades. But I just still show up and do it without um, without thinking more than uh, thinking uh, like the kids today. Oh, I'm an influencer. Oh, I'm this. I'm like, yeah, I don't know what I am. Well, and I don't think I think if you are actually thinking that you're an influencer, you're just a piece of shit. <laughs> like, there's no, you know, the only person that should be influencing you is really yourself. Yeah. You know, and um, one of my great teachers was. Mary Ellen Mark, who was a phenomenal photographer. I don't know if you know her work. She she did. Do you remember there was a documentary about homeless kids in Seattle called Streetwise? Anyway, her husband, Martin Bell, was the documentary filmmaker who made it. But it was based on Mary Ellen's uh, documentary series on these homeless kids. But she's done all kinds of great photography. Anyway, I did some master studies with her. And her whole thing was do not document your job is to interpret. So to interpret means, once again, that you come to what is, right? Whatever yeah. you, you know, like a very Buddhist point of view is right now, it's like this. Yeah. So whatever that is. And then the interpretation is how are you going to capture it, right? right? Be it by writing or photography or whatever you're doing. Yeah. So that's kind of been another strong mantra in how I make art and do my life. That is really cool, and I, I just wanted to like end the show when you said, uh, what, "What did you say about the social the social influencers? They're pieces of shit or something." And I was like, "It was great, great having you, Cat. That's the show. Thank you so much." <laughs> good, good to meet you, Tony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, no, that's funny, but it's true. I don't, I don't, yeah, nobody needs that, and it, it blows my mind that they're really people take that seriously. I mean, and even we as artists, I know if a publisher is looking at our work or you know, an art gallery or whatever, they're looking, well, how many, tw- you know, Twitter followers do you have? And yeah, and it's, it's, I understand on one hand because they do have to market us and an artist has to have the ability if they're going to be putting the work out in the world to be able to talk about it and to write about it, whatever they're doing. But, you know, to, to turn your nose on somebody because they don't, they're not a social media influencer or they don't have over 5,000 followers. What a joke. It's, it's absolutely pathetic because, you know, like 10 years ago, we did stuff on merit. <laughs> <laughs> we 
well, completely on merit. And then, I mean, I think of how many times maybe I heard something on, you know, KCRW, some music I'd never heard of, or maybe a friend just goes, oh, check out this book. or, And I'm like, oh, my God, it changed my life. But it wasn't because, oh, wow, Kylie Jenner told me that I should blah, 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 you know, whatever that might be. I just, I don't get it. And I also don't get speaking of a Kardashian, why they have so many millions of followers. You know, what have they done that is so important that it's that life-changing? I mean, it really shows you the shallowness of where people are at. You know, I'm not saying that they're not valuable human beings and they haven't contributed something because I... You know, I think well, that's we very kind of you. I don't think they have. <laughs> well, that's probably true, but I mean, they're still human beings. But I right. don't, I really don't understand. And they've created an acceptance of there's a tiny little bit of people that will have all the wealth and money and luxury in the world, and we're all going to watch it, and we're going to we're going to aspire to that, knowing we really can't have it. You know, and they've set up this, they along with all the real estate developers and corporations and, you know, lobbyists and GOP motherfuckers who take their money. They've set this whole income equality. Like today I was driving back from my appointment and I saw new luxury homes. When I see the word luxury right now, I just go, oh, that that luxury equals greedy, fucked up pig that's going to make somebody's life miserable. Someone's going to lose when you see the word luxury. And again, I'm not against people who have money or make money or share their money. I'm not at all. But when we live in this this town, Los Angeles, I was born here, right? And... I'm looking down the barrel of being Ellis Act out of my home I've lived in for almost 25 years so that it can be torn down to put up luxury condos. It's horrible, you know? So I feel, and then of course, obviously, we still see all the homelessness and, you know, and I'm sorry, those old tropes of homeless or mentally ill addicts that just are lazy and that's not true at all. And even if they are, so what? Can we have some compassion for that? Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it isn't to, to make them wrong and to turn our eyes away from that doesn't make it go away. In fact, it makes the problem worse. And speaking of the Kardashians and where we are now, it's almost like Paris Hilton is the Jack Kerouac of our generation. <laughs> okay, now the show is ending on that. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Tony. <laughs> of course, could someone get this to Paris Hilton? Because she's good. she'll put it on her social media and then this whole interview is going to go viral. All I'm trying to do is get a retweet. (laughs) Oh, and then maybe she'll get it to Lindsay Lohan. Oh, wait, she's yesterday's news. I mean, uh... (laughs) It's so intriguing, though, because I come at Los Angeles with a... Because I I only came six years ago. So my... uh, I I had no idea how cool and how down-to-earth a lot of LA is and you know where it's just like I always I always thought oh it's just Santa Monica Promenade and Rodeo Drive and I'm in San Francisco because I didn't have any understanding but I knew about the punk rock but I but there was I had to come down here and like embed myself a bit and like meet people and then go wait a second there's just a lot of really cool creative juices down here that just I just like thrive on you know it's uh, and I don't know if it comes from those punk rock OGs of like you or or what? I do. I think it, and in a lot of ways it does. I mean, there's so many things where LA has always been second or considered shallow. And well, there is that element 
for sure. It's not at all. I mean, in terms, some people at this point would argue that the art scene in L.A. is surpasses New York, and it really does in many ways. And again, a lot of the artists, like other people, come here for the weather and the way of life. Like, don't get me wrong, I love New York and I love the East Coast. I was just in Boston, and it's fabulous and good people, but. The weather here is better, so it makes life is a little easier, yeah. I think. So, you know, who wouldn't want to create art here? Yeah, and it's, I mean, when the, uh, this is what I have found, you know, being a fella of budgetary concerns, when the weather is nice, you spend less money on things because you don't have to get inside everywhere. You can go have a picnic right. outdoors almost, you know, 11 months a year. Right. Instead of a restaurant, and that changes everything. It does. I mean, I'm a. I love to hike and walk, and uh, during the summer, I like to body surf, and yeah. so I spend a lot of time outdoors. And well, and again, even in Los Angeles, because I live in the Los Feliz area of LA, yeah. I, my bedroom window looks out on the Griffith Observatory oh, and the Hollywood yeah. sign. So I go up there to hike all the time or just even walking through my neighborhood's great but um which we'll talk about with 10 mile radius but um i also feel like in the summer like i said two three times a week i'm down at the ocean at least you know and then this actual spring we had the most amazing super bloom of flowers because of all the rainfall we had i spent damn near every weekend for a couple of months going out to the high desert, the low desert, you know, to, out to the ocean, all these different places to photograph and to be with this super bloom that was, it was beyond magical. I've never, I've, you know, like I said, I'm a native Californian. I've never seen it like that. It was amazing. And then you totally Instagrammed on the California poppies, right? Yeah, that, well, that, I'm the person that took the picture of Paris Hilton laying in the flowers. You know, no. Yeah, I did, I did, I did put them on my Instagram, so check it out. No, no, but I was talking about the, the uh, people who went out there with costumes and like sat on them and smashed them. And people were like, can you stop doing that for your. I saw them. Yeah. I, I mean, I did see them. And um, also, I went out to the day after it was in the news. Uh, what was the place called Walker Canyon, which is out near Elsinore? That's where they shut it down because the place that they were seven hour waiting to get in and all this. I mean, and this is not like there was a person taking tickets, right? They didn't have enough bathrooms. They didn't have enough, you know, trash cans and what have you. And my friend and I had already planned to go there on Monday. So Sunday's the day that everything. And we didn't find out until late Sunday night before we were going to leave that that happened. And I said, well, let's go out because maybe everyone thinks it's closed. And if we can't go in, we'll just keep driving. But we were actually able to get in. And everything, it was great because at that point it was, there there weren't that many people out. And then, I'm not kidding, a tourist bust of a bunch of Asian people with umbrellas and cameras showed up. They were actually cool, though. I mean, yeah. they were, and I don't think any of them spoke English, but I thought, oh, my God, the tour buses are here out in nature. That it just It's just an area off the freeway that has this wildfire. I'll show you some pictures. Okay. But that, that'll, be, that'll be after because this is audio. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> go, to my web, go to my Instagram page. It's Cat Gwyn. Yeah, yeah. The, um, all right. And then back to... Back to discovering photography did you discover did you did, did you find out you were a photographer in your punk rock years like when you were young mm-hmm, kind of is that in between the cocaine no. and the booze yeah <laughs> well no actually I was a punk rock kid I started 
I got into punk when I was about 14, 15. And then I started playing in some bands and I, I played bass. I was on New Wave Theater and what was the guy's name who died? Peter Ivers? He was the host and he actually got murdered. And I played with a couple bands that were on the show. Um, I think we opened for Fear, actually. Yeah, and Lee Vink said I had the best tits in L.A. Well, there you go. Now that's a social influencer. <laughs> and and then I go on to get breast cancer. Damn. Um, but so I, you know, I was playing in bands and, and my boyfriend and I had a band together and with a bunch of friends. And then when I was about, was I, I was almost 21. I was 20. And my boyfriend's house burnt down and he died in the fire. No way. Yeah. Now, how long have you, had you been with him? Um, we, probably since I was about 17. Oh my God. Oh, this was for real. I mean, mean, his mom happened, thought that I was spending the night with him, but I I was working at a restaurant and I remember I had a meeting that, like a waitress meeting that morning and I was at my mom's house because it was closer to the restaurant and Joe, my boyfriend Troy's mom, (laughs) called me looking for Troy, thinking maybe he, they, they didn't find him at the house. And I'm like, no. And the weird thing was when my mom woke me up and said, Joe's on the phone, I was having a dream that the world had, like a nuclear bomb had gone off and the world was on fire. And then I get this news and I rush down to his place. They were still putting out the fire. And I met with his mom, Joe, and then the fire chief came out to tell us they had found a body and that it, you know, we knew. And it was, that was so life altering to be with, a woman who just lost her child, her youngest child. And I will never, I mean, that it has been imprinted in my heart forever. And so it was really hard to keep playing. Like my, my, my bass was weird because my bass was in my car. So I, my bass didn't burn up, which was great because it's a pre-CBS Fender Music Master. Okay. That I, I'll, I'll nod my head like, oh, wow, that's great. I don't know what I'm look, I'm nodding at. Musicians would go, wow, that's cool. Um, so I still have my, my bass guitar, but I think I would have preferred that Troy lived. Um, yeah, yeah. Also, he was blind, which was interesting. Yeah, he was a really interesting character. And again, I think my takeaway of knowing this person who lived such a, an amazing life for 23 years, um, like he skied. He traveled in Europe by himself, blind, right? He was an amazing guy, really talented musician. Um, and But it kind of taught me to never say what if, you know? So just go, do, do what you need to do, live your life. And then, you know, fast forward to this last five years of my life where I too was looking down the barrel of, you know, serious mortality. And it just reinforces, like, you don't have time. like. You need to be living your life the way you want to live your life. Right. And view yourself the way you want the world to see you. Yeah. You know? So so then, um, and then after Troy's death, that's when uh, the photography, when did that bug yeah. come in? Well, so what happened was, I mean, I'm just going to reconnect. I wasn't even thinking I was going to talk about this part of my life. Um, I was living in L.A., and I was working at Andres of Beverly Hills, which was like an old-school Rat Pack kind of groovy restaurant. And um, I was all of 21 at that point, and I was making really good dough. And so I started to travel, and I had never owned a camera. And I'd always been a musician. 
So again, I never thought visually, though my grandfather was a well-known California landscape painter. My mom was a portraitist oil painter. My aunt, my sister, like so many visual artists in my family, my grandmother, but I never thought of myself as a visual artist. But I felt compelled to get a camera. So I bought this little Vivitar Tech 35 point and shoot. And I fell in love with pushing the shutter. I did. I literally, it's like the power just to go click. Wow, there's life. And people started seeing my images and they're like, wow, you have a really good eye. And it, it like, it really captured like in my soul. And then I, I've never, my mother was an atheist, artist, anthropologist from Berkeley. So she was three A's. Yeah, she was the three A's and an alcoholic too. So oh, four A's. And, um, but she was really smart and really cool. And, um, she encouraged me. She said, learn more about this. And I'm like, well, shouldn't I get, you know, you, the kids that would go to art school would be like, well, don't you need something to fall back on? But my mom's attitude was, well, if you learn something to fall back on, that's what you're going to end up doing. Yeah. She's like, go do what you want to do. And, and so while I can look back, that was many years ago and I can look back on my life and say, wow, there's been some heartache, a lot of uncertainty and things that you know, probably would have made my life have more security and flow because I chose to be an artist as the bad side of it. But the good side of it is I am living the life I want to live. And every day I wake up with purpose to do what I genuinely love with every fiber of my being. And it's so sad. I feel like most people don't have that. They wake up to the jobs that they kind of don't want to go to, but they went to school for, so they got to go to. Right. And there's and there's just this yearning for Friday night and Saturday. And there's just something beautiful about just yearning for Monday and Tuesday just because we got fun stuff to do. Right. That's a beautiful way to put it. And I think it's true because, I mean, sure, I like my weekends too at the, because I tend to try to, since I am a freelance artist, um, I tend to keep like Monday for Friday through Friday is sort of a work schedule yeah, yeah. and get things done. Not to say that I don't work on the weekend because I certainly do right. if a job comes up or I need to get a deadline done. But yeah. um, but because so many other people have the weekend off, it's like, oh, hey, let's go out for a hike or let's do whatever, you know. So but but I think you're right that it's every day is a day to look forward to because I don't know what I'm going to find. So you get photography, you're traveling. And, and you realize you know how to tell a story through a frame, which just, it just blows my mind. For, for photographers and cinematographers, I just, I keep getting more and more respect because I'm like, wow, I could just see the whole, I could see the story there and you can just tell, you could tell a good photographer by just, it, it's almost storytelling. It is storytelling on every level. On every level. It's interesting because... And we'll talk about it a little bit later, but I, um, I did. No, we won't. Okay. Fuck you. <laughs> Um, okay, I'm shutting up now. <laughs> Whose show is this? Oh, I'm sorry, Tony. Okay, so um, last year I did a really, <laughs> I did a really cool um, photo essay and written conversation with the writer Deanne Stillman, and um, Deanne's like one of the most incredible writers, incredible woman, and so we. I went back out to 29 Palms, where she had her seminal book, 29 Palms, had been written in the late, I believe it was the late 80s, that these two young women were murdered. So she 
I went out and spent a couple days and photographed. And now these girls have been gone for 25 years or something, right? At 27 years, maybe. And so I couldn't find them. I could go back to where they were. So I did what I did in 10 mile radius and I looked for the detritus. I looked for the details of their lives in the smallest, most insignificant, seemingly, um, you know, details of this town, this marine town. And then we, she and I had a conversation, but later this, the Joshua Tree, the essay that you read that I just finished um, not too long ago, Deanne wrote the epilogue for that. And because she has spent so much time out in the desert and that story more or less takes place in the desert, she wrote a beautiful epilogue. Um, but we were talking about it because I've, I've really only started seriously writing in the last maybe eight or ten years. And um, she said, I'm going to totally paraphrase what she said, sorry Deanne. But she was saying, it's interesting what a good writer I am, being that I'm not a trained writer. But she said, you know what it probably is? You're such an accomplished photographer that understands how to tell a story. She goes, in the frame. But she said, you know exactly what to keep out of the frame. Yes. And she said, and you do that with your writing. And the way you segue from one sort of you know, palette of thought to another is beautiful and very mature for a writer that isn't really an experienced writer, which I was really complimented by that. And, but at the same time, you've been in the storytelling realm for decades, so it, so that so it I think it all feeds in. Like even like there's there's lyrical musicians who write excellent novels, and you're and you're just like, of course you're going to write an excellent novel because you've been working with words for decades and right. well, you just Patty had to being one of them, right, right. right? Exactly. and so um, and but it's weird though because a lot of photographers are so afraid of words and all the bodies of work that I've done always include words and I'm to the point where I get a little shun from the fine art photo world because I don't quite play by their game and I tend to bring in words and because it's not conforming to what they feel comfortable with, I think sometimes it's they don't know what to quite to do with me. And also because I also make my living being a commercial photographer, and that's sort of looked down upon in the fine art world, which I find hilarious because, you know, uh, how, that makes me a better photographer. I mean, bar none. You know, that's like looking down on someone who writes for magazines or you know, whatever. I don't even care if you're doing technical writing, but if you're writing, you know, great essays, short stories, novels, whatever you're doing, that doesn't make you a worse writer. You're not selling out. Exactly. I, I feel like, I mean, when I was writing for like San Francisco Chronicle and doing all, you know, a lot more uh, journalism coverage, entertainment, you know, li- literary and uh, music, it always worked towards my writing. At the same time, I felt like I was in it for too long, so it fucked me up a little bit. I'm like, oh, I should have got, you know, it's almost like stripping. I should have got out before it got to my head. You know? <laughs> or till, my, till I had to get my third boob job. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> right. No, it's true. I, I get it. I mean, and there's times where, I mean, I feel a little bit of regret in one hand, like, why didn't I focus more on the commercial realm? I'd be making more money because there was a a good 12, 15 years that I made really good money being a commercial photographer. I was shooting stock for Getty and Corbis. I was shooting a lot of assignments. And then the recession hit 
the internet hit, and then Getty fucked everybody under because they underpriced all the stock imagery, which then that that exploded everything. Because if you know creatives think that they can buy an image for a dollar, why are they going to pay a photographer a real fee for that? Yeah, and yeah, I think well, that's a whole another discussion. Oh, yeah, but but like I feel like. Um, like online publications are finally starting to pay writers again because they realize, oh wait, we forgot about good writing <laughs> instead of a good headline. And I, it's, it's. I feel like it's starting to come back. And I'm like, oh okay, I might start writing for some of these magazines again because big magazines that I respected that were paying well, all of a sudden went, oh, uh, there's no budget. And I just went, well, then there's no writer. I mean, right. from me. Right. I'm not going to write for zero when you guys well, used to be. And I did the same thing. You know, like, I have not given money, or excuse me, well, that too. I haven't given my photos to Getty, which all every agency I was represented by got swallowed up by Getty. And I just don't give them images anymore because you create them on your own dime. And then they sell them for pennies. And But they're making tons of money. Right. And it's like, I, what, I really need to make you more wealthy? Yeah. No, thanks. All right. Now we <laughs> get to... Let's talk about art. Now we get to 10-mile radius. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's talk about it from the... Uh, let's start with the project and then the project's inspiration. I guess they're, they're both entwined. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, 10-mile radius. Um, well, this is interesting. I had started to come back after years of really being hurt deeply by the recession and a bunch of other things in my life that just, and my mother's death, um, my brother-in-law's death, like all these things that just kept, I kept getting hit with huge life losses. And of course this recession where I, my income dropped by 85, 90%. That's huge. And it's a whole new way of living. And, um, and it took a few years to like reinvent myself and figure out, okay, I'm not going to probably make the money I used to, but I can do these things to keep a roof over my head. Yeah. And I started, you know, I'm doing those and I'm getting, I'm pulling myself out of depression. I'm beginning to get my life back. And then boom, I get cancer. And I was like, okay, this one, I don't know how I'm going to pull the rabbit out of the hat on this because my mother had died of breast cancer. And just months before I was diagnosed, my friend had died of breast cancer. And then I ended up getting the worst type of breast cancer you can get, which is called triple negative. And it's the, some people refer to it as the pancreatic breast cancer. It's very rare. They don't know very much about it. All they know is that if you're going to survive it, you got to do a lot of chemo. I mean, a shit ton of chemo. So, so at that point, is, is it... You're getting to the point where it's like, okay, now I have to start making plans for death, essentially? Is well, you don't know at that point. Okay, I mean, there's, there's still... No, no one was telling me. My doctors okay. weren't saying like, okay, you know, get your, get your, affairs. Get your affairs together. Okay, yeah. No. I mean, they were looking at it saying, it's going to be a tough road to hoe. Okay. But, you know, there's every, you know, there's reason to believe that you will be okay. Yeah. But, and I did weirdly I started to find my luck through that but that's a whole other story um my luck yeah through cancer and it started with by just happenstance getting with truly some of the best doctors in the world who 
really have did and continue to take incredible care of me. So I could do a whole riff on like Obamacare and the right of everyone to have health care too. But let's, I'll stay with the story. We'll stay with me. So, but it was serious and I knew that I was going to be looking down the barrel of really serious treatment and well over a year in treatment and which what they don't tell you about when you have a cancer that hard how long it's going to take after you're done with treatment to rehab rehab your body I mean I'm still rehabilitating my body and when and that's because when they're doing the chemo is that because of all the toxins that are that come and they cause a lot of side effects like I got neuropathy in my fingers and my toes you know um, I ended up getting horrible a horrible frozen shoulder near where all the lymph nodes were taken out Um, you know it it increases arthritis and inflammation my teeth got rotten while I was going through it. So I had to go through pulling wisdom teeth, root canals, crowns, cavities. Oh I, mean, I mean, who wants to do that alone? And then all of a sudden you right. go, it's like, oh, wait, you have cancer. Oh, wait, enjoy the chemo. Oh, wait, now we got, now go to a dentist and we're going to put a drill in your mouth. Right. You know, it's, yeah. it's truly adding insult to injury. Oh it's like, fuck, yeah. you know. And then on top of all of this, six months before I was diagnosed with cancer, I was in a horrible car accident coming home from yoga one night and I'm getting off kind of, you know, where Vine from the 101 Vine goes into Franklin, that weird intersection. It's about 10 o'clock at night. And this kid didn't realize I had the right of way and pulled in front of me when I was going about 30. And I had a horrible, I mean, I'm permanent damage whiplash. So I was already, my body was already broken when I got cancer. So, no, but but you already had the cancer during the accident. It was just found later. Is that what it was, or no? Well, probably no, because here's the interesting. I don't know. Some hormone cancers, estrogen positive or progesterone positive, her two, they tend to be uh, slower growing cancers. Maybe not the her two, but the ER positive, PR positive cancers for breast cancer are slower growing, and sometimes maybe the tumor or the cancer was in the, the woman for many, many years. Okay. Triple negative is different. Yeah. So, in, so the accident happened in November. In February, I always got mammograms because my mother had died of breast cancer and her sister had it, beat it, but now has ovarian cancer. So I was always getting checked and I went in and did an ultrasound and a MRI, or not an MRI, excuse me, ultrasound and a mammogram. So you, re- so you were really staying on top of oh. the prevention? Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. And it was clear. That was February 20th. On May 4th, I found a stage three tumor. That's how fast triple negative is. That's why I think they refer to it as the, you know, the pancreatic breast cancer. Okay, so PSA, continue to get checked, everybody. Anyone who tells you like, oh, mammograms cause breast cancer, bullshit. You know what they do? They save your life. Yeah. So get them every yeah. year. And, and more than that, touch your breasts all the time. Yeah. I found my lump. Wow. So I would have, if I had not found the lump, then I would probably be dead because I, wasn't, I wouldn't have gone in to get another mammogram because I had had the mammogram in February. Right. And it's an annual thing. Yeah. And as I said, I found the lump in May. Yeah. So... Yeah, I'd be at a graveyard right now talking to air. Yes, you would be. That's right. And that would be boring. So, yeah. yeah. So, um, 
So I found it. I was at home and I brushed my arm against my chest and I was like, ow, what is that? And then I touched it and the, the second I touched this, this, and it was sizable, I mean, it was like that big. I was like, whoa, what is that? And then I ran down the hallway to my bedroom. I laid on the bed and then did a, a serious self-exam and it was palpable. I mean, and I went, oh man, you are fucked. I knew, I mean, I didn't know that it was triple negative. Right. But I knew that it was breast cancer. And weirdly, that afternoon, I went to a half a day retreat. I've been a practicing Buddhist for years. And I went to a half a day retreat um, about women and body image. And my, the two teachers, Joanna and Mary, are dear friends of mine. And I came in and they, I, you know, they're like, what's up? And I said, I found a pretty serious lump. Here, feel it. And they, and they immediately went into you know, bright sighting the whole thing, like, oh, it's probably nothing and blah, 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 right, blah. Right. And I'm like, you guys, I know. I just knew it to the core of me yeah. that it was. Yeah. And so then you go through a lot of, you know, biopsies and testing and imaging. And 10 days later, I was confirmed that it wow. was. Yeah. And then after that, they're like, all right, now we got to get you in treatment, like instantly. Yes and no. Yes. I mean, they, they, it's interesting. I'm at Cedar sinai And uh, as I said, not only do I have these two incredible breast surgeons and my oncologist, who's amazing, she's the head of experimental therapies there. Um, that's how I got to her, my first piece of luck, because my amazing surgeon said, this woman, Monica Mita, is running a clinical trial on triple negative. And so I fit the criteria of the study. And I probably would not have gotten to her had I not gotten on that study. But because I was on a study, and here's another PSA, if you get cancer, try to get on the the clinical trials. Most people won't do them because they don't want to be a guinea pig. But the only people who maybe want to do them are stage four who are dying. They're like, give me the miracle drug, right? But you want to do them because you are helping other people. And you could very well be helping yourself on top of, I ended up with this incredible doctor who's just amazing. She's in my story in yeah. the Joshua Tree. Yeah. Oh, cool. So, um, so then, from cancer to treatment to ten mile radius. Wait, what? Okay. So what happened about that was everything is laid out. So when you get cancer, and especially with one like mine that has such a rigorous protocol, treatment protocol, they run it like a it's a well grease machine. Like you know where you're going to be, you know what your chemo treatments are, like everything. Wow. So the first thing I did that was, I think, pretty smart is I, because I'd been around so much cancer, I understood that I had no control over it. Now, that's a little counterintuitive in a way because you see most people who get cancer and they hashtag cancer's my bitch and I'm more powerful than the cancer. And I knew better. Bullshit. Yeah, yeah. No. That, that three centimeter tumor, that was, that had more power than I do. Yeah. So the thing I and because of all the years of meditation practice and mindfulness training I understood that my job was to be with that ultimate uncertainty so obviously sitting on a cushion was going to help and it did but I needed another form meditative form to keep myself present you know it isn't about like I'll just you know go na 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 and I'll in right. a year I'll be back to better and I'll just pretend like it never happened right. no what you really want to do is turn inward and you want to go right into the eye of the storm uh-huh. is is the way to heal yeah. and so I 
I'm a photographer and I love what I do. So I thought, well, you know what? I could every day photograph just beauty that's around me. And so that's what I did. I would walk every day because I, I knew that the more oxygen that I got into my system, that would help me heal. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I thought, well, I'll just take walks and I'll make photographs. Yeah. Well, so what I did was I used my iPhone because it's always with me yeah. and it's the easiest camera in the world. And I kind of had always shunned the iPhone because I'm like, oh, that's not like a real photographer. Right, right. You know, like, oh, come on, I'll just get my Nikon and shoot manually. Right, like, right. whatever. Um, but so I but I fell in love with this little easy camera and I taught myself because when you do chemo, they give you a lot of steroid to counteract against anything. Well, it just jacks you up because it's, you know, and then it, you, then you get fatigued afterwards. So my whole sleeping patterns were off and everything. So I would, I had, I mean, I, I had steroids once and I was like angry for a oh. week. I wanted to kill everybody. And then I was like, wait a second, you're on steroids, relax. And I'm like, how do these, sports guys who have these huge bodies calm down you know yeah. i want to beat somebody up so bad just for like breathing <laughs> i'm like ah no 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 just, i had to keep reminding myself you're on the drug you're on the drug but still and it's funny because you're on it and you might know that and you might breathe into it but still your body like what it does to you and they were giving me decadron like you know infusions of this yeah, yeah. intense steroid which i'm sure it did really help with other you know like allergies and all how you got outside is amazing because with that steroid i just would have been like warm bath not leaving the house <laughs> well it well i did do warm baths too because if you do epsom salt baths epsom salt pulls the toxins out of your body so the whole thing was poison in poison out and it wasn't just the poison of chemo it's the poison of the decadron it's the poison of you know benadryl the poison of ativet like every chemical they put in so when i had a wonderful i have a wonderful acupuncturist who was working to make sure that my kidneys and my liver were working optimally because he's like drink tons of water and I'm going to keep your kidneys and liver going because you want to filter it out, yeah. filter it out. And so me, what could I do? So what did I have control over? I, I could make juice. So I did a lot of green juice. I could walk. I could make art. I could meditate. I could do gentle yoga. These were the things I had control over. Yeah. Everything else, I just handed over the reins and went, you're the boss. Just tell me where I would need to be and I'll be there. I'll show up. So I, so that's what really engagement is. And that's how you heal. Yeah. You know, and also I trust my doctors literally with my life. And they have proven to me over and over again, they have nothing but my best interests at heart. Like they really want me to be alive. And they yeah. want me, not only be alive, they want me to have the highest quality of life. Yeah. And so I see so many people in the cancer world not trust their doctors and like well I read on the internet that if I just do an infusion of you know baking soda and lemons I can cure myself and I'm like you're a fucking idiot yeah. you know it's like do you have a degree in oncology oh wow you don't so why don't you just shut up and you know if I hire someone to fix my car they know more about my car than I do right. I don't go oh you know I read on the internet that it so yeah those people irritate me um <laughs> Well, the internet's just—I mean, yeah—it's—it's it's such clickbait anyway. Everything is just like so, somebody was, uh, someone was sending me articles from this one newspaper. I'm not even going to mention the name, 
And it said, oh, how coffee's really good for you. And then I was like, oh, interesting. And then I looked in their archives and they had an article two years before how you need to stop having coffee. <laughs> so I'm like, don't you need to do a retraction when you write the article? No, they don't. They're just trying to circle in there. It's just, right. it's bullshit. It yeah. is all bullshit. And I think that everything, I mean, also when you have cancer, everybody's got a fucking opinion to tell you how you should treat it and what you should eat. I literally had gone with some friends to um, see a movie at the West Side Pavilion, the Landmark Theater, which I love. And I went, prior to going in, I got a cookie and I got a cup of coffee and I was I had my cookie next to me. I'm putting my cream and sugar in my coffee. And some West Side blonde babe comes up to me because I was bald. It was clear I had cancer. And she told me, no, no, sugar feeds cancer. And I said, and my fist might fucking break your nose. I mean, it was like, and she looked at me and she goes, that's so negative. And I said, what you just did is uncalled for. Which that's just utter bullshit, busybody, not knowing the whole situation. Right. Fuck her and all those people like her. Right. And it's the same as, I mean. Not West Side. I mean, there's some nice oh, no, people well, West Side. People yeah, yeah. West Side. But you, I mean, I'm just trying to paint a picture yeah, of what yeah. came up to me like, are you oh, kidding me? And it's like, oh, wow. Yeah. Did your yoga teacher tell you that? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was, it to me, it is the same as these cell phone Beckys that go and take pictures of a black family having a barbecue. Or, you know what I mean? Like. Keep your fucking nose out of people's business. Like, seriously. And it's so uncalled for. It really is. I would never, I never offer anyone any kind of advice about how they should be with their cancer treatment. I mean, if they ask me, I can say, this is what I did and it worked really well for me. Well, it did work well for you. And the minute, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm ready to get my colonoscopy. I'm almost turning 50, right? So I'm going to my doctor. I'm like, hey, when can I schedule it? He's like, you're not 50 yet. And I'm like, come on, man, get me in early. Just because I don't want to be the idiot that like, they're like, well, if we would have found this three months ago, you'd be fine. But you're one of those people I'd come up to you and be like, cat, give me everything. Give me everything from the Epsom salt to the epidural to the what do I need? Absolutely. No, it's true. And I will tell you on the colonoscopy, I couldn't get mine because I was in cancer treatment when I turned, uh, right? And so I remember I was so concerned, like, oh my God. And so I said to Dr. Mita, I said, I need to get my, my colonoscopy. She goes, not now. And I said, I go, and she goes, trust me, if you have colon cancer, I'm so killing it right now. <laughs> And I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And so then, you know, like a year or so ago, I was able to get my my colonoscopy. Yeah, yeah. I will tell you one thing. Yeah. All is clear on that. But the best thing, they have, the anesthesia is awesome. Yeah. Oh, man, it is such a, it's great. Yeah. And then when you get out and you get to go, like, to go to Cantor's or whatever and have the meal of your life, it's the best meal you'll ever have. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah, because you can Did you have your meal at Cantor's? Yes, I did. I did. <laughs> I had I had a brisket sandwich and half a brisket sandwich and uh, matzo ball soup. It was really good. <laughs> there should be a guidebook for people who have colonoscopies and then the meal after and where to have the meals and why that you know. Oh, and I, anyone who's had a colonoscopy, which many of us have, go oh yeah, and then you go home and you're still kind of like woozy from the anesthesia and you just hang out and watch Netflix. It's great. Yeah, yeah. It's really good. You'll love it. I promise. <laughs> So that so then you then now you have a book out ten mile radius. Oh, well, okay, so there's a lot in between the cancer and the book. Right. I did not. Let me reiterate. I did not start this. You know these photographs to make a book about my experience right. going through. Like there's been plenty of 
excuse me, memoirs going through, you know, someone going through cancer. And what I later have come to find out that, that you know, medical narrative is actually a huge subgenre of writing. You know, I didn't... I never even... Is, is this a medical narrative? We'll buy it. Is yeah. it not? We won't. No. Well, I mean, and there's some great medical narrative stories. Yeah, yeah. There really are. And... But I think what was unique about my story was that it was a memoir with images, you know, and if you looked at the book from the first image and if the titles were a big part of the story. So if you look at the titles, there's a story arc in the titles and they are not linear the way I laid it out. I laid it out to tell more of the story, but they these were all the images I took you know, or a selection of the images I took going for a couple of years. So I was taking these images, I was posting them on social media because, you know, I am such a social media influencer, me in Paris, and um, people were really responding to them. Now, here's the other thing. I never said ever publicly that I was going through cancer because I still needed to work. And I didn't want clients to go like, oh, yeah, you can't really hire her because she's going through cancer. I would show up with a bandana on or a beanie and they'd be like, oh, are you okay? And I'm like, I'm fine. What do you need? Let's get it. Like, I had to work. So um, I was making these images, putting them on, and people were just really digging what I was posting. And it was like it was like medicine to me to be seen for my art, not for the can- being a cancer lady. Not, and not to mention, because I do have a lot of not in real life friends on social media who I, I like a lot of them, but I didn't really want unsolicited advice or, you know, I just wanted to be seen for the art that I was making. And a friend came into town. I was probably about seven or eight months into treatment with quite a few months more to go and we were having dinner and she I've known her for years really close friend and she said what is it like like you know going through this and I'm explaining well I don't have an immune system and I have to be careful where I go and I barely have any money because I'm just scraping by and I said oh my god my life has been condensed to a 10 mile radius and she looked at me and she goes oh my god that's the title of your book and I went what book she goes, the book, you're, the book you're making. I went, I am not making a book. She said, oh, yes, you are. And it's funny, her, she, we refer, Teresa, that's my friend, we refer to her as the witch. And I went, oh, shit, if the witch just told me I'm making a book, I guess I am. Um, so I just, but once I kind of accepted that, I, you know, like the idea of how oh, this could be a book, then it, you know, it becomes how do you compose this? You know, that's the one thing that, you have to know as a you know when you're telling a story it's like music composition it's like how do you bring people in and out of a story right and 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 it isn't it isn't just you know from start to finish and so um then i would you know i'd start making these photographs and i'd go oh i see how that ties to this and that you know and i could see the story coming and so i worked on that and then i i don't remember when it was I was still shooting, but I approached Tyson Cornell at Rare Bird because he, you know, the story is an L.A. story. He's an L.A. publisher, and we knew each other from friends. And he then pitched the idea to the distribution company, Publishers Group West, and they said, yeah, that's a great idea. And so the rest is history, as they'd say. So, yeah. And, um... I mean, that's just fantastic. So then people can come to this book, and it's not like a normal what you call it a medical narrative it's it's a it's it's just almost it's a different type of storytelling oh, yeah. about the surviving 
surviving cancer and surviving the treatment. Well, it's that. But, you know, again, so many people who have read the book have said, this is so much more than cancer. Like, this is a primer on how to live. Yes. You know, and they're like, did you feel like that yourself when you were when you were um, when you were doing the photography on I, you weren't I don't know if you were doing it consciously, but realizing that and that in order for you to continue on the path of moving forward to the next step of life, that maybe towards the end of it, you went, wait a second. This got me through. Um, this got me through a lot. This right. got me through the, the oh, hell. I, well, yeah, absolutely. And yeah. at the time I was. um I've been sitting with a group against the stream. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, Noah Levine had started Refuge Recovery, which is a Buddhist-based addiction recovery. And I'd known Noah for years and years. And he, they needed to get an art therapist. And, of course, they're like, I don't want someone coming in and showing people how to do God's eyes. Well, because he knew what I had done. And this is before the book came out. He said why don't we get Kat to come in and teach them how to mindfully make photographs with their iPhones? And I did. And so I worked there for well over a year teaching, and it was really rewarding because I could take all my knowledge of the Dharma and mindfulness and and then, you know, art and photography. And I, I still am in contact with a lot of my students. Wow. You know, some have died from overdosing, yeah, yeah. and um, some are still struggling, and some are, are been clean and sober for a while. And then from there, I got hired by uh, a, a place called the Control Center. Uh, it's Reef Kareem. He's a Dr. Reef Kareem. It's his uh, it's kind of a trauma, uh, an anxiety, addiction place, dealing with that. And so I worked there from couple of years teaching that process not so much on the art level but mindfulness and how to use cre- you know mindful expression with creativity yeah. as a centering tool and so in fact last month I had gone to I spoke at Harvard at the, oh, yeah. at the medical school yeah, yeah. I um, met a woman who uh, runs the Center for Healthcare Narratives at a DC and she and I have become friends and she did an article, she has a lit magazine called Please See Me and Deanne had actually recommended, Deanne was her professor in the MFA program at Riverside and um, said you should check out my friend Kat Gwynn's work and she fell in love with it and she said your book is like medical narratives 2.0 like you're so much more forward thinking and what how to be with illness and transform yourself and so she we did this interview it turned out great and then um, she pitched me to this patient engagement uh, experience symposium happening at Harvard and they said sure and it was amazing you know and I was there it was with all these East Coast people right. you know people from Tufts and Harvard and Sloan Kettering amazing doctors and pra- nurse practitioners and people and administrators and there is the West Coast is a little bit more forward thinking about mind body spirit healing okay. and so you know I just told my story and afterwards so many people came to me and said God, I've never even thought of it that way. What a beautiful way to be with illness. Yeah. You know, because I'll just finish with, we're all going to be with some form of illness in our life. Oh, yeah. Be it our own or maybe someone we love. Yeah. And it is so intense on a spiritual, emotional level to be with because it's it's frightening and anxious. Yeah. And we really do all know how need to learn how to be with it. To, to be with it and also probably find community with it as well. To Absolutely. be to find oh, yeah. other 
other people that you can pull together with. Absolutely. And, and, you know, and I'm, this is, you know, I've heard this from numerous people. When the shit hits, hits the fan for something, you think some of your friends you think will be there are not. And you're Isn't like, whoa. And then yeah. other friends where you're, you know, you, you, you love them, but you weren't even thinking. They end up being your yeah. biggest champion. Yeah. It's amazing. And yeah. Um, so, yeah, your community also kind of finds you. Yeah. And I think that. And again, I don't, there was a few friends of mine that I was a little surprised that weren't there as much as they could have been. But one of them came to me and talked to me about it later, and I appreciated that. And I was able to say to her how I felt. But because there was this open communication, and it was okay, Yeah. you know? Because I think people sometimes can't deal with what's going on inside themselves. Bef you know what it is, especially with cancer, everybody is like deathly afraid of cancer. Yeah, yeah. Like that's like whoa, and no one wants to hear that. And it I, for her, it was very triggering, you know, because her mom had died of cancer, and it, it's scary to be around. And I appreciate that, you know, that's okay. And the fact that she had the maturity to talk about it with me, you know, it's it is fantastic. And I think that also people don't know what to say to people who have cancer. Right. And, you know, just be honest yeah. and, you know, and don't and also and I don't say to someone, so what do you need? Just show up and do something. Yes. Yeah. You know, like I had another dear friend of mine, Stanny and my friend Peter was so there for me and they just showed up like we're going to clean your apartment today, yeah. you know, or this is, you know, here's some groceries yeah. like it was. And the, all my friends who showed up on the cat chemo world tour it was amazing no seriously i got to the point where everyone at cedars was like she knows everyone in the world and they're all going to be coming to her chemo and they would show we'd have parties like it was amazing i mean i remember once one of my best friends punk rock larry who's got like this massive you know mohawk and tattoos and he we go down to the samuel ocean cancer center we're gonna go get my chemo and we walk in and and it, the door you know the elevator door opens and i said to larry welcome to cancer land and without missing a beat he said it's the most cancerous place on earth <laughs> and then we just laughed the whole time yeah. and we got in trouble from a patient that was in a chemo bay, it was like a room next to mine, and they're like, you need to quit ha laughing and having so much fun. And my nurse was in there, and we all kind of look at them like, what? And she goes, my husband has cancer. This is really serious. And I'm all rigged up getting, you know, yeah, the yeah. red devil drip. And I look at him, and I go, yeah, I, I understand. Life is important, and it also shouldn't be taken that seriously. Yeah, yeah. You know? Did you know red devil drip was my stripper name? <laughs> Really? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't even say, the red. Everyone knows the infamous Red Devil. It's the only thing worse than the Red Devil is probably stem cell replacement. Wow. It's bad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the nurses come in in hazmat suits and they would apologize to me. I mean, it's like death. Yeah. It's death. Now you're on the other side of death. Here we are on a beautiful day in Los Angeles. What do you, what, um, what, what do you take in now, being on the other side of it? A lot of gratitude. Um, I, you know, I tend to, it doesn't mean that I don't get depressed or I don't get frustrated or get angry. I mean, I did all those things, but I understand how limited my time is. Yeah. And not that I, I don't plan on dying tomorrow or whatever, but I hope that I have 30, 40 more years of life, yeah. which I could. Yeah. And, and maybe I don't. I don't know. Does any of us really know? Yeah. But because I don't know, I tend to pull myself out of the muck 
a bit faster. Yeah. Even when I'm, I would prefer to stay there, I'm like, yeah, but you know what? You don't have time. Yeah. You know? And I think the Buddha said that. The problem is we think we have time. So, um, yeah, so I think that's where I'm at at this point. And I'm, and I'm not as um, hung up about aging. Oh, interesting. Well, because we're in a culture that's very hung up about aging, which it, I always find intriguing. This would be another hour if we went on this, but um, but it's just like we're so hung up on youth culture, where I think that's new in the past maybe 50 or 60 years, where it used to be we would look to our elders, to our to the to our gurus and our guides. Right. Absolutely true, and I feel like. You know, I get it. We all want to aesthetically look as beautiful as we can. and But you know what's really funny? I found my beauty in cancer. Or I should say I refound it. Um, you know, when you're... I was bald for a year. And in the beginning, you know, you you know, maybe the first week or two, I wore the wig and always would wear a scarf or whatever. And quite honestly, it was too hot and too irritating. So I just freestyled it and I would be bald. And it was interesting because people would say to me, oh my God, you're so beautiful. And at first I thought, oh, that's just because, you know, you're, you feel sorry for the poor cancer lady. And then it just became too much. I mean, too many people going, wow, look at you. You're so radiant and beautiful. And, and I started to own it, you know. And a friend of mine who's an amazing makeup artist, who was one of my glam squad, who kind of showed me how to put eyebrows on and all the things that you lose. She said, you know, she calls me Kisa because she's from Iceland. And she said, Kisa, true beauty is if you can pull off being bald. And I did, you yeah. know, and I was like, own it, yeah. own it. Why not? You know, that's fantastic. Kat, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, my God. Tony, thank you for having me. I've loved talking to you. Yeah, this is good. Kat Gwynn, everyone on Drinks with Tony. Check out her book, 10 Mile Radius, Creating a Personal Map for Wellness. You know, cash and money are really dirty. And if you put it in your pocket, it's right next to your groin area. Have you ever felt not so fresh down there? Well, get that money out of your pocket and put a few bucks into Tony's Venmo account. Email duchesne at gmail.com or user tony-duchesne. Yes, cleanse your groin area for a great cause. Help keep Drinks with Tony running and entering your ear holes. And yes, feel fresh down there. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week on Drinks with Tony.